Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Prior to the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, counterterrorism was not a high priority for U.S. foreign policy. U.S. counterterrorism strategy has been a combination of both unilateral action and multilateral partnerships. The National Defense Strategy, which was released earlier this year, arguably makes working with partners even more important for U.S. counterterrorism efforts. But how has U.S. counterterrorism policy evolved? More importantly, what is U.S. counterterrorism policy? Joining us today to discuss these questions is Stephen Tenkal, Associate Professor at the School of International Service at American University and an adjunct fellow at the Center for New American Security. His latest book, With Us and Against Us, How America's Partners Help and Hinder the War on Terror, is an excellent resource for those of us who want to know more about U.S. counterterrorism efforts. Trevor and Stephen will join me shortly, but first, to help me course through what's been happening around the world over the past couple of weeks, I'd like to welcome my colleague John Glazer, the Director of Foreign Policy at the Cato Institute. Thanks for joining me, John. My pleasure. So President Trump just recently completed a trip to Europe that included attending the NATO summit in Brussels on July 11th and meeting President Vladimir Putin of Russia in Helsinki. There was a great deal of anxiety leading up to the NATO summit, and President Trump has made his disdain for NATO and its members well known, saying things like NATO members need to contribute 2% of their GDP to defense and saying that Germany is totally controlled by Russia. Yet the president said that the summit was a success. Can you explain why the president called it a success? And what does this all mean for U.S. foreign policy? Well, Trump claiming it was a success is kind of like a, a habit of his. He goes into a meeting. He goes into a diplomatic environment, kind of is a bull in a china shop, um, throws the chair over, you know, screams at people and then comes out saying, well, we got a better deal. And he went so far as to say, you know, that uh, Europe pledged to spend more on defense than they had previously pre- pledged, which is actually not true. What they did was reaffirm an already existing commitment from the Obama era um, to by 2024 reach 2% of their GDP spending on on, on the military. Um, look, I mean, there's a lot to criticize here. First of all, uh, Trump is certainly right that there's a burden sharing problem with NATO. Presidents going back to Dwight Eisenhower have, have talked about this. It, it is a big problem. Um, but he goes about it in all, in all the wrong ways. Um, and it's not all that clear to me that he understands the actual value uh, and the substance at issue. Um, so why is it important for NATO to spend more on their military? Uh, what threats do they face? Um, if he really wants Europe to spend more on the military, there's a simple way to do it, and that's just for us to spend less. Stop subsidizing European defense by having a military that's expensive enough and big enough to fulfill all of the obligations that we have made to European countries in order to defend them. Um, uh, he, he's, he thinks of this too transactionally and too much on a personal level uh, and not strategically. And so it's a bit of a pity that his primary criticism uh, uh, on the issue of NATO burden sharing is uh, articulated in such a um, fundamentally uh, wrong and mistaken way. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It does show his sort of transactional nature. And what I found surprising was also, or not really surprising, but what I thought thought was also odd, how he referred to Germany being controlled by Russia. I feel like that's more to do with his personal take on Angela Merkel than on like U.S.-German relations. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a lot of pent up disdain for our European allies, not because of the burden sharing issue or or their posture towards towards Russia, but because of values. I mean, they kind of represent uh, the opposite of Trump's view uh, on immigration, on multiculturalism, on uh, kind of liberal, internationalist, uh, globalist, as he would call it, um, uh, values. And, and he wants to revert back to kind of uh, strong borders and nationalism. And so they represent something that he uh, wants to work against. And so that, there's a lot of pent up frustration on that. On the question of you know Germany being un- captive of Russia 
because of this Nord Stream deal that they have to deliver gas through a pipeline under the Baltic Sea and directly to Germany's shores, that's kind of silly. I mean, it's fair to point out that there seems to be a tension here between uh, Germany's security and economic interests and its kind of normative and ideological commitments. It wants to stand up to Russia because of what happened in Ukraine and, the, and Crimea um, and because of the uh, difference in values and political systems. But you know, at the same time, it may, it's cheap and it makes sense for them to get this this uh, this these this this Nord Stream deal. Uh, and so, for Trump to kind of bang on that, I found was uh, not quite fair. I don't think. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. But also, um, President Trump uh, met with Russia's Vladimir Putin um, in Helsinki last week, and during the joint press conference, Trump seemed to undermine U.S. intelligence agencies by saying that Russia did not meddle in the 2016 U.S. election. Um, is this Trump's attempt to redefine U.S.-Russian relations? What's going on? You know, most of Trump's approach to Russia and Putin, I just find utterly baffling. Uh, there's a lot that I can't explain. You have to get into the, to the, the mind of the man to really have a firm understanding of it. Um, you know, I supported the idea of the summit to begin with because uh, I have a knee-jerk supportive response to any sort of diplomatic meeting. I think they're good and healthy things to have. And I don't buy into the criticism that, you know, meeting with someone gives them legitimacy and therefore you shouldn't do it, that it's a reward for an American president to meet. And so, you know, there are tangible issues of uh, geopolitics that the United States and Russia have to work out. Uh, and so, you know, a diplomatic summit is a, is a good venue to do that. The problem is Trump is the president. Uh, and he has this uh, bizarre admiration for Vladimir Putin that is deeply unsettling. He even goes so far as to undercut his own intelligence community, as you said, and their assessments of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, that just obviously the, the optics around that are, are not good at all. Some people go a little too far in this debate, however, I think. You know, so there's, there's some criticism that you know, Trump's performance on the stage that day is indicative uh, that he is in the pocket of, of Putin, as former CIA director John Brennan said, that it was treasonous, uh, that you know uh, they might have compromising material on him, and that's why he's being so obsequious to Russian interests and so on. But I view it, I mean, there, that's possible. It's certainly not implausible that the Russians have something on, on Trump. Um, but there's a, a viable explanation as well that you know, Trump views any mention of the Mueller investigation, any mention of Russian interference in the 2016 election as an attempt to delegitimize uh, his election. And, you know, internally, this is a guy who very clearly has a lot of uh, confidence problems and a fear that he's doesn't he's not seen as legitimate in the world, and so he overcompensates in lots of ways. And uh, and sometimes that's in ways where it comes off really unbecoming. Uh, and I think that's what happened at the summit. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I found troubling most of all was not necessarily that they met, um, but how Trump so easily said, well, Putin's telling me that we didn't interfere. Therefore, you know, Putin didn't interfere. To me, that seems a little too gullible. And Trump, I don't think, is gullible. And then also, it just seems like it's his way of undermining U.S. institutions. Now, certainly nobody likes being under investigation. Trump is no different. But it just seems um, an odd thing to do and questionable. Um, now, whether or not um, Brennan should have tweeted out what he tweeted out is, is, a, is a different issue. But I do think that this is Trump's way of undermining U.S. institutions, which he represents, which is just weird. Yeah. I mean, it was shocking to hear him condemn Peter Strzok, the FBI official that headed up the, uh, the investigation to begin with and was since fired for having, uh, you know, uh, nasty texts with his, uh, with his girlfriend about Trump. Uh, you know, to have the president of the United States condemning a, an FBI official who was just in uh, congressional hearings in front of uh, Vladimir Putin on in Finland, you know, just it was really uh, strange to watch um, and uh, kind of we need to reevaluate a lot of things, <laughs> I think. Um, so Pakistan's general elections are tomorrow. Uh, you are from Pakistan. You do a lot of your work here at Cato about Pakistan. Um, 
These are the third consecutive elections since 2008, which on the surface is a good development. But these elections seem to be a little more different than the past two, uh, particularly because there's no favorite. All the main political parties are struggling. No one really wants to predict who will win. Uh, do you have some predictions? How do you think it's going to look? Uh, who are the players? Um, how do you think it will impact U.S.-Pakistan relations? So um – I'm going to are on the side of also not predicting um, who's going to win. But um, there are basically three major political parties that are in the running. Um, the first one is the party that's been in power since 2013, which is the Pakistan Muslim League. Um, Nawaz Sharif was prime minister till he wasn't, till he was disqualified. And this is a sort of right wing um, conservative political party. Um, their opponent is the Pakistan People's Party, which is a left wing socialist party from the province of Sindh. Um, Benazir Bhutto's party, her son Bilawal, is, is running um, from there. And um, the third major party, which I think will be interesting if they win, is Pakistan Tariq Saf, which is Imran Khan's party. He's, you know, a cricketer, a world famous cricketer who formed a political party about 20 years ago. So it seems that he might win the election, but um, it's, it is still really hard to predict. And things in Pakistan are generally unpredictable. So we'll even have to see if the elections happen or not. Um, but, you know, whether or not the new administration is going to change U.S.-Pakistan relations, I think U.S.-Pakistan relations will basically stay the same because the main issues are still the same. The Trump administration has a very hardline approach, and that's not going to change depending on who the prime minister of, of Pakistan is. Um, if Imran Khan does win, he's uh, traditionally been a lot more critical of the United States. But, you know, he's never been in power. He's never been prime minister. And my sense is things change when people take office. So I think we'll have to see how Pakistan ends up balancing China um, and how that influences U.S.-Pakistan relations. But from a Pakistani side or from a U.S. side, really, I don't think that there'll be much much difference. So there's a lot of talk in recent years in the United States about a, a deep state here in, in the United States. And uh, years ago, there used to be more talk about a Pakistani deep state, this um, sort of uh, bureaucratic and military uh, establishment that in several ways kind of seems to run the show more than elected officials. Uh, if any of these front runners uh, uh, win, you know, is what? What's the process? Do, do do the military establishment kind of feel them out and see uh, where they can push and pull, or is it more, um, you know, oh, you better kind of get with the program? <laughs> well, um, I think it's like a combination, really. But right now, what's happening is the military is sort of already part of the uh, campaign or or election, really. Um, they've actively backed um, Imran Khan, um, and they've actually really gone after. Um, the Muslim League. So there's been a lot of talk of, you know, whether or not the military is in a position, like why they're doing so, why they are backing Pakistan, Tariq, and Saf. Of course, all of this is denied by the military. The military um, keeps saying that they want civilians in power, that they believe that a civilian government is, is good for Pakistan, democracy is good for Pakistan. But the deep state of Pakistan, which is essentially the military establishment and intelligence agencies, they, I think, are fine with a civilian government being in power, but but they want to be in charge of national security and foreign policy. And I think right now they're um, betting on Imran Khan, that Imran Khan is going to let them sort of maintain their dominance on national security and foreign policy. And would he kind of have a, a, a new or different approach to Pakistan compared to, uh, sorry, Afghanistan compared with his predecessors? Or are we looking at more of the same? I think we're looking at more of the same. Um, if nothing else, Imran Khan historically has always advocated holding peace talks and reconciliation talks with uh, the Taliban, especially with the Afghan Taliban. So I think if nothing else, uh, if he does win, um, it would be a good chance for um, peace talks to take place with the Taliban. I think they trust him a lot more than they trusted Nawaz or even Benazir Bhutto. Um, as for the United States, um, you know, it's hard to say whether the U.S. could use the Imran Khan administration to their advantage and, and to have peace talks with um, the Taliban too. But, you know, it's going to be interesting because it ultimately it will depend on what the military wants. And my sense is if the Pakistani military doesn't want peace talks, Imran Khan's not going to have peace talks. Very interesting. Oh, thank you, John. That was really interesting. I'd like to now um, welcome uh, Trevor Thrall and our guest, Stephen Tankel. Stephen, welcome to the show. Uh, Sahar, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Before we jump into the topic, though, um, we need to ask you our surprise question of the day, which is, um, 
you know, is there any book or course or individual, really anything? What was it that got you interested in foreign affairs? So I'm a professor of right international security and foreign affairs, so I want to be able to say that it was a professor or a course or something that inspired me. But the truth is that my career trajectory now is very much a product of 9-11. Uh, I had worked in uh, on domestic policy and politics uh, out of college. Um, uh, I was working in the private sector uh, at the time of 9-11, in large part because I'd been on the Gore campaign uh, in 2000, and Gore did not win. Um, and uh, I was doing crisis management, uh, and American Airlines was a client of my firm's. Uh, and so I was out at the airports uh, within, you know, not too many hours after the attacks took place. Uh, I became uh, their sort of expert for implementing the Aviation and Transportation Security Act. I became their shoe bomber subject matter expert. Um, this was sort of my entryway into the world of security. And uh, suddenly, you know, at the time, uh, writing the same set of talking points on, you know, healthcare or what have you, which now is a really big issue back then, you know, sort of wasn't, didn't seem as pressing and, and didn't seem as interesting. So I thought I was, I'd always thought I was going to go back to sort of public service or, you know, uh, policy in one way, shape or form. Um, instead of going back and doing domestic politics and policy, I ended up going and getting my master's degree, caught the research bug, got a PhD, and here I am. Wow, that's awesome. That's quite a story. Uh, it tells me something <clears throat> about how old you are, though, that, <laughs> that your career, um, unlike some of ours, could be um, so uh, shaped by 9-11. Uh, although I have to say, even amongst older people such as myself, it certainly uh, gave us a lot to write about. So it's, it's hijacked not only U.S. foreign policy, but scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it has. Fantastic. Yeah. So let's uh, dive right in. Um, Stephen. What is the Trump administration's counterterrorism strategy? Is it any different from the strategy laid down um, by Bush and Obama, or is it influenced by the Obama administration in any way? Sure. Um, well, for starters, I think it's important to note that we don't actually have a physical counterterrorism strategy from the Trump administration. One leaked uh, to the press a year ago. Uh, and based on those reports, uh, you know, it, it is pretty clear that there was going to be a, a heavy emphasis on burden sharing, uh, on working with partners, uh, which is not surprising if one listens to uh, Trump's rhetoric. Um, but uh, it was – and that was in some ways similar, I should say, before I say the but, that was in some ways similar to what Obama had had you know, pushed. Um, Obama made working by, with, and through partners a cornerstone of his counterterrorism strategy. Uh, however, from from Obama's perspective, uh, you know, as far as 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 I read it, this was intended to make counterterrorism more sustainable, and I mean sustainable in two ways: one, to reduce the costs and risks for the United States um, by sharing them with other countries, but two to make gains on the ground more sustainable. The idea being that if you had military gains and local partners didn't have ownership over the fight and you weren't uh, supplementing you know, military assistance with civilian assistance and you weren't trying to build partners' capabilities, then you were going to defeat the terrorists, create or sort of displace the terrorists, create a vacuum, uh, nothing would fill it, terrorists would come back. The Trump administration wants to share the costs and the risks, or rather wants to sort of displace them onto partners, uh, but doesn't seem to sort of share that same uh, appreciation for sustainability, at least if you look at Trump's budgets, right, and, and where he's wanted to spend his money. Now, that said, um, in practice, things don't look all that different. And in part of that is because the same people, right, on, on a civil service side who were in place under the Obama administration are still there more or less, uh, you know, in the Trump administration, a lot of the people at the working level are the same. And so a lot of the day-to-day -day CT doesn't look that different, right? Um, what looks different are at the top, the objectives, which are more maximalist, uh, the heavier emphasis on militarization, which I, I you know, of, of policy, which I already mentioned. The fact that Obama and Bush, although I don't think either had great success, both thought it was important to try to promote some sort of political reform. Uh, Trump doesn't. Um, you know, and and although you could argue that neither Bush nor Obama had success, the fact that the United States was, was at least emphasizing the importance of governance, rule of law, what have you, was in and of itself 
you know, better rather than worse. Um, and, and then, you know, the final thing I would point to that's that's different under Trump, um, you know, sort of at the top down level is uh, the the conflation of terrorism with other issues like migration. Um, and whereas I think uh, Obama in particular uh, sort of tried to stress the idea that terrorism was not as big a threat as some people thought it was, sometimes to a fault because the American people have a funny way of, you know, being told what they should and should not be afraid of. Uh, I, I would say the Trump administration has gone far too far the other way, which is to sort of talk about be afraid, be very, very afraid and to use terrorism as a sort of umbrella for a lot of other issues. So let me pick up on <clears throat> one thread there. There was a, a, a copy, an early copy draft of the CT strategy leaked. Then like many documents has taken much longer to actually appear than one imagined it would. But the question I'm having now, now, and, and again, good to hear you talk about and we won't use the word deep state, uh, <laughs> but the national security bureaucracy who's in charge of implementing, it, uh, they didn't change. So, so understandable that that sort of stuff continues on in the absence of higher level intervention. But the question that I'm left with is who exactly in the Trump administration is responsible for writing the next CT strategy? Because it seems to me that you know there's a couple of possible generic answers here and it matters a lot which camp is it the Stephen Miller camp or is it the Mattis camp? Um, what, what do you have any clues? Um, so, the short answer is no. Um, the 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 strategy the strategy is currently I'm t I'm told being rewritten, which is to say, right? We had an early draft that that leaked out a year and change ago. It was again a couple months. It was I think May that it leaked out, which means that it had been they'd been writing it for a couple months already. I'm I'm the rumor is that there is a, a new strategy that is being worked on. That's hard to verify. Uh, they do have a new senior director for terrorism. They still do not have a special assistant to the president uh, for terrorism and homeland security. Um, so, you know, that new senior director may have the pen. Whether, you know, whether it's going to be Mattis that has a lot of input on that process or Bolton or Stephen Miller or who is is tough to say, or maybe this person will kind of like uh, be able to to take the pen and 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 run with it himself. Um, the other you know piece of rumor that I've heard out there is this question of whether um, the 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 soft power um, side of the equation really has relevance for counterterrorism, right? Whether or not the United States should be trying to use all of these different sort of whole of government tools for CT. Um, it, that's, I think, a debate worth having, um, but it's, you know, we, it's very hard to know who's having it, uh, um, you know, or, or, or how thoroughly vetted that's going to be. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine. I mean, with Trump's opposition to nation building and democracy promotion and all those sorts of things, it, I, I find it very hard to believe that he's going to be up for pushing non-military aspects of CT as hard as, as previous administrations. Yeah. And there's, I mean, it's, I think it's important to note, right, that there's a, that there's, there's, it's not all or nothing, right? It's not as though you have to have a purely military counterterrorism strategy or you have to ha be doing nation building. Um, there's a lot of, of space in between for how you use uh, diplomacy, soft power, uh, multilateral institutions to try to get partners to do all manner of things, um, you know, be it uh, address governance issues or even uh, be, you know, commit more to domestic counterterrorism operations. I mean, there's there's all different ways in which you can use soft power for leverage. And there's all, you know, types of interventions that one could have in the countering violent extremism space, uh, which was like a, a really hot topic during the Obama administration is kind of a dirty word during the Trump administration that falls short of nation building. And again, um, I've been one who said, listen, I think that there is a lot to be skeptical about with some of these interventions, but that doesn't mean that I think they should stop. I think that means that we have to be much more rigorous about how we do assessment, monitoring, and evaluation. I think we need to be much more clear about sort of managing our own expectations so we could mitigate where possible. We need to be much more clear about the trade-offs that are going to be be made. That doesn't mean you don't do these things, um, but I think you know it remains to be seen my hope is that the Trump administration doesn't move in a direction where they say, forget all of this stuff. 
we're only doing the military piece, but my fear is that, that, you know, if he had his druthers, they might. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think even in one of the articles you mentioned, um, along with your book, this idea of like faux counterterrorism, how the Trump administration is really linking things that are not counterterrorism to counterterrorism. And my sense is that that will most certainly affect soft power. Now, your book, of course, talks about partnerships, right, and the role of partners um, and how they help U.S. counterterrorism efforts. So... Um, how do partner nations enable and constrain U.S. counterterrorism efforts? Sure. Um, before I come to that, I want to make one point on the faux counterterrorism in terms of domestic. Um, my publisher hates that I'm probably sort of putting something before talking about the book. But but I do want to note that, right, so in the book, I write a lot about partnerships with countries in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. But we need partnerships here at home as well. And I, I see one of the dangers of sort of this idea of faux counterterrorism, of of putting a whole host of other issues under the umbrella of terrorism to try to make people afraid of uh, of, of potentially alienating uh, Muslim communities here in the United States, being that you lose important domestic partners when it comes to terrorism here at home. And I, I think that is something that's important to acknowledge, right, is this, this idea that, um, you know, most of the texts that have been broken up here at home, the majority of them at least, uh, have owed to um, tips, information coming from Muslim communities. And so if you alienate those communities, you lose important partners on the ground here. Now, as for partners overseas, um, sort of the, the impetus for the book uh, was the was Bush's sort of famous expression, right? You're either with us, you're with the terrorists, which has become ingrained in the collective consciousness as you're with us, you're against us. And the truth is when you're looking at a lot of the partners with which the United States works, especially in places where terrorists are located, and the countries that I look at in the book are Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Mali, Egypt, and Algeria, all countries that had jihadists on their soil at some point both before and after 9-11. These countries simultaneously help and hinder the United States. And I lay out a bunch of different propositions in the book, which you know I'm happy to sort of uh, get into here in a bit more depth. But at the top level, I would point out a couple things. One is that... Um, Alliance dynamics, right? The relationships between the United States and these partners is still important, right? The nature of bilateral relations still matters. But the other piece that matters is the relationship between these states, these partners, and the terrorist groups that are the target of cooperation, right? We have this sense that terrorists are bad guys and we can all agree on cooperation against the bad guys. But that's actually not the case. Um, and if you look at U.S. counterterrorism policies dating back to the Bush administration, they talk about shared threats, which all sounds good except for the fact that a lot of cooperation depends not just on sort of whether the United States shares that threat with a partner, but how that partner prioritizes the threat relative to other threats, right? So you and I both work on, on Pakistan. So great. The United States and Pakistan share a threat from al-Qaeda. But for the United States, that was the top tier threat. For Pakistan, way down on the spectrum, right? Below, certainly below India, below Afghanistan, both of which are US partners in the region, right? Below the TTP, once the TTP comes on the scene, right? Tricky Taliban, Pakistan, below a host of others. So that's sort of the point is that we need to be much more cognizant of the political dynamics that are at play when we're doing CT. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's something that I've found in my research as well is that um, in the U.S., we tend to think of terrorists as very black and white. And I think, you know, the Bush administration rhetoric hasn't helped with that. But also, even when we analyze um, U.S. alliances and even regional partnerships, we always think that, well, this is a shared interest, that we should counter terrorists. But another thing I wanted to talk to you about in this sort of realm of, of partnership is that it seems that the United States obviously has to rely on these partner countries for domestic counterterrorism efforts. So how have these domestic counterterrorism efforts in, say, Pakistan, Mali, Algeria, etc., constrained U.S. efforts? Or what kind of leverage um, does the U.S. have to offer for these countries where the terrorists are, but they may not. They still may not necessarily be a priority for these states. Absolutely, um, and you're absolutely you're 100 right. I mean, the United States simply cannot be everywhere. Um, these partners are the tip of the spear, um, and we want to say to ourselves, we have a shared interest in fighting terrorist groups. But in some cases, that's true. Egypt and Algeria, where the only good jihadist is a dead jihadist, right? Um, and in other cases, uh, it's it's 
you know, the exact opposite, right? Pakistan, where the United States has an interest in fighting the Taliban, the Haqqani network, and, you know, groups like Lashkar Taiba, and Pakistan distinctly does not. And then you have states that are in the middle, right? Mali, which for a long time just ignored al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Uh, Yemen, where the former regime under Ali Abdullah Saleh um, sort of had you know, this cooperative and competitive relationship with AQAP, right? My students would call them frenemies. Um, and unfortunately, right, you heard me say a minute ago that we need to be cognizant of both alliance dynamics and those relationships between states and, and the terrorist group. Unfortunately, this is an instance, right, where we're talking about the conduct of counterterrorism operations by a partner where alliance dynamics matter far less, right? The instruments to statecraft that we have security assistance, economic assistance, um, again, right, sort of working through multilateral institutions uh, to provide incentives or coercion, um, diplomacy, other forms of soft power, all of this matters less than the way in which the partner in question perceives the threat from the terrorist group and the utility of that terrorist group, right? Low threat, high utility, yeah, you're, you're more than likely to get operations. High utility, low threat, pretty hard to change, you know, a country's uh, calculus and, and get them to wage a sustained, comprehensive campaign. Yeah. I, I <clears throat> just to pick up on a couple of things, I, I have since 9-11 been frustrated at the use of the fairly empty label terrorist to describe a person or a group. Um, you know, it, it seems that even this many years later, we can't agree on... Um, the notion that terrorism isn't a purpose in life. It's a tactic, a strategy that groups who have actual goals, like goal, these goals, uh, these groups don't form to do terrorism. It's not like a, a book club where the point of the group is terrorism. Um, and I'm afraid that that has made things difficult on many levels. But, um, but I'm also interested to hear you say a little more about what kinds of instruments you think the United States has made best use of and which may have been less useful because uh, I've been doing work on arms sales recently and I have become convinced um, that arms sales, but in addition security assistance and many other instruments are at best what we might call blunt instruments. Uh, and that as you suggest, the calculus of other countries is so tough to change that a few tens of millions of dollars here or there, or even a lot more in the case of bigger countries like Pakistan, you can give them $100 million a year. It's not going to change anything. So, But maybe give us a sense of what you think some of the better and worser strategies look like. Sure. And I think uh, to answer that, I think it's helpful to sort of to take a step back and look at what we mean by counterterrorism, right? Because terrorism is this, this label that we just kind of broadly apply. And counterterrorism is also this label that we broadly apply. And if you talk to different... I, I've just been spent a couple of weeks in Europe, right? The Europeans don't agree amongst themselves on CT, much less with us. And even if you talk with different agencies here, they will give you a different sense of what counterterrorism means. So in the book, part of what I try to do is to lay out what I see as the breadth of counterterrorism objectives that the United States is trying to get cooperation on, right? And again, this is just a piece of it because we're talking about overseas. So I already mentioned domestic counterterrorism operations, right? So that's one. A second would be, you know, sort of cooperation on things that I, I say would fall under the umbrella of tactical cooperation, right? So intelligence cooperation, right? We're going to share intelligence or you're going to act on intelligence. Um, coordination on detainees, be it rendition or access to those detainees or when Obama is trying to close Guantanamo, accepting them back, right? Uh, access access for overflight, access for basing, access for troops to do capacity building, right, with security cooperation, access for drone strikes. Because even though legally we hold out the right to drop ordinance on other people, from a policy perspective, we'd really prefer your permission, right, before we're going to do it in your country. Um, a third bucket would sort of be regional cooperation, which is joining coalitions, helping on diplomatic initiatives that have resonance for terrorism-related purposes, and then finally doing that CVE stuff that we were talking about earlier. And, you know, of those four buckets, of those four categories, those instruments of statecraft are, I would say, by far the most useful when it comes to tactical cooperation. Access, right? Um, coordination on detainees, uh, 
building up a good military to military intelligence to intelligence relationship so that we can share information, right? Um, this is the kind of stuff that can help keep the threat at bay, but it's very often going to be insufficient to defeat a terrorist organization. You're going to need the partner nation to take ownership of the fight on the ground. You're going to need them, right, in many of these places to. Um, you know, to undertake socioeconomic and political reforms if you want to deal with the risk factors. Unfortunately, our instruments of statecraft are far less useful um, in those areas. Uh, although I should note on the CVE front, you know, we we talk a good game. We haven't actually really sort of made a sustained commitment there, um, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, uh, but it should mean it does mean that we need to sort of be mindful of what it is that we can expect. Uh, and I would argue that by doing that, you you can optimize cooperation where it's good. You can mitigate things where it's bad. And that's how you get the most out of that trade space in between. I think that's great. And you know, um, I think when it comes to CVE especially, and this is sort of a side note, but I think that CVE is one of those things that starts off with very good intentions, but it just ends up being really misunderstood or either just taken really badly. And I mean, I have more experience um, doing fieldwork in Pakistan and any, and even though I focused on counterterrorism efforts within Pakistan, any time I encountered CVE information, it was always met with a lot more skepticism than any of the counterterrorism stuff. And I think that's sort of one of the things that you talk about too, where we have to assess what exactly we're doing. And there's a lot of um, sort of bad tactics out there. Um, I don't know if CVE is necessarily a bad tactic, but I think it's definitely needs something, some a lot of reform. But considering that and considering the four buckets you just mentioned, um, who do you think, which countries are the most challenging partners? Um, and then which partners are the easiest? Which which par- which states does the United States like doing counterterrorism with? Um, I mean, in the parts of the world where terrorists are located, there's, you know, there's not a ton of, of what I would say are, quote, easy uh, um, partners. Um, and I think it's important to remember that I was looking at states where where terrorists were based. Um, you know, I think if one looks at the Arab world, Jordan and the UAE are probably, you know, come to mind as the the two uh, counterterrorism partners of choice. Um, and neither of those is a perfect partner, right, by any stretch. Um, you know, uh, the UAE has, I think, come a long way since the days before 9-11 um, when it was one of the, you know, three countries that supported the Taliban and may, may have tipped off, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, uh, you know, about information that the United States had um, regarding bin Laden's presence. It's certainly come a long way since then. Um, but look at its intervention in Yemen, you know, as part of the that Saudi-led intervention there. I would argue that that whole intervention is harmful to U.S. counterterrorism interests. And if you look at what the UAE is doing on the ground, even after they sort of um, got on board and started taking the fight to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which for a while their forces had been fighting alongside against Houthi rebels, you know, then there were accusations that they were, uh, you know, running, um, you know, uh, prison camps where torture was taking place, right, which is distinctly, again, unhelpful. Uh, Jordan, again, I think it's a, it's, you know, a partner, partner of choice, uh, really, really strong counterterrorism partner. When I worked at the Pentagon, you know, the thing was like what Jordan wanted, Jordan got, right? Um, but it's struggling to keep its internal house in order. Right, um, and there are, there are concerns there. Uh, so, you know, I would point to those as two as as two partners of choice. But again, most of these partners help in some ways and hinder in others. Right? I mean, that's that's sort of the whole thing, um, and that's true for European countries as well. Right? I mean, things work better with with military allies, but they don't work perfectly. So, there's something you mentioned there. I, I know this is about our partners, mm-hmm. but it it something you said about Yemen. It, are are we our own worst partner? It seems to me that a lot of what we do, especially the unilateral stuff or the mostly unilateral stuff, uh, and I include the drone campaigns mm-hmm. and, and so on, but also obviously just generic Middle East sure. occupational stuff. Um, it occurs to me that it would be easier to partner with people if we weren't doing most of that stuff. Like we would be taken more seriously. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the uh, leaving aside, right, it's hard to leave aside, but I mean, let's. You have the invasion of Afghanistan, which I think was a a, a, a valid exercise and you right a, a warranted intervention uh, after nine eleven. You have the invasion of Iraq, which you know I think is widely considered to be one of the you know greatest foreign policy blunders of modern times. Um, 
you know, that's distinctly unhelpful. But even the drone stuff, uh, the you know, the drone strikes, that starts out as a way to work around difficult partners, right? I mean, that's the thing is that you can't get Pakistan to conduct domestic counterterrorism operations against AQ or the Haqqanis, so you work around them. Salah's regime in Yemen is not getting the job done, so you work around them. We're increasingly using drone strikes to support partners in some places. Um, which is not bad in and of itself. Uh, what worries me is that there's absolutely no transparency about what the threshold is for action, right? So I don't know. It used to be continuing imminent threat to US persons. It no longer is. We don't know what it is. And so it's really hard to know when we're taking strikes, why we're taking strikes, who we're taking strikes against. Um, and, and again, I'm not opposed to using drone strikes against uh, militants that threaten our partners because I think that's how you can build stronger partnerships. But I would like a lot more transparency about what the threshold is and how that works. Um, but I do think it is the case that we become too enamored with the permission and the access necessary to conduct those types of activities at the expense of other things. And that's where we put our leverage and that's where we put some of our asks. Now, part of that is because it's easier to get a yes on those things. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I've i seen what the what the index card looks like, right? When the sec def goes in to talk to somebody, you don't fit a lot on an index card, right? So if one of the three points is access for, for drone strikes, well, then there's other stuff that's getting left off. So that's interesting you mentioned the drone strikes. Um, how big of a role do drone strikes play in counterterrorism? operations. I mean, to hear some people tell it, that would be our counterterrorism policy, right? Um, they play a, a much bigger role in some places than in others. Uh, obviously, they're critical in Pakistan and, and Yemen and increasingly in Somalia. Uh, we are not conducting strikes uh, in areas that are not conventional battlefields other than those countries, right? Yemen, Somalia, and Pakistan are the three uh, right, sort of areas outside of of active hostilities, right? They're not conventional battlefields where we conduct drone strikes. Um, but in addition to drone strikes, drones are useful, and we forget, these started as a surveillance tool, and they're particularly useful in that regard, right? They're for what's called intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And the United States uses them for that in many other places, including the Sahel, for example. And there, they're used to enable our French allies. So the French are in the lead. Uh, you know, conducting counterterrorism operations against uh, jihadists on the ground there. The United States is supporting that with airlift, with aerial refueling, with, you know, surveillance from, from, from drones. So in that regard, right, they, they, they are an important tool, but they are just a tool. They are just an instrument. Um, and I, I, one of the things that I really try to convey in the book is that we tend to think about CT very mechanistically, tend to think in terms of drone strikes or shared intelligence or you know, counterterrorism raid. Counterterrorism is a political activity. Counterterrorism cooperation is political. We are trying to counter political violence. Um, there are political decisions being made about whether or not you're going to conduct CT operations. There are political decisions being made about whether you're going to do governance or rule of law reform. There are political decisions being made about whether you're going to provide access. There are political decisions being made about whether you're going to join a coalition and what you're going to contribute to that coalition. And, you know, so to view it in this kind of very, very mechanical way, even though on a day-to-day -day basis, it is, it can be quite mechanistic. Um, ultimately, it, it's a political activity. That is so true, and and one of the things um, you know you've written about is is the need for the United States to do a better job understanding the politics on the ground in these places. And one of my main concerns about stuff like this, and when you raise the lack of transparency, I, I worry that. Um, what you know, you have a real principal agent issue here, where you have a distant partner whose politics you poorly understand, whose actions are not transparent to you, whose intentions are not very transparent to you. Uh, there's a you know a, a welter of different groups that you don't understand too well, and then they start telling you they have intelligence and you need to kill these guys and these guys for us, and you don't know what you're doing. Oh, is it CT? Oh, sure it is. Or is it really just your handmaiden of the regime helping them you know eliminate opposition? I think that's really hard to know, and it's not it's not a very comfortable position to be in. And if it is a cost of you know as you point out, there are trade offs. Doesn't necessarily mean you don't do it. 
But you have to acknowledge that this kind of slippage or collateral damage or unintended consequences is a real thing. Yeah. So I, I looked at sort of this issue of direct action for a long form uh, article for Politico, and and I was I was diving into this. I you know I went back and forth with folks who'd sort of worked these issues closely and. Uh, you know, I think there's a real, at least in the previous administration, there was a real commitment to try to understand, you know, who it is we were killing and what it is we were doing. But it's, you know, it, it, it's as you know, it's it's incredibly tough because we because we we are we are not, um, you know, as knowledgeable as we could be or as we should be in a lot of these places, and that's not right for lack of trying by individual policymakers. Uh, you know, I think individually intelligence analysts and policymakers recognize the importance of understanding our partners as well as we understand the threat. Collectively, if you look at sort of how policy gets made, we are still overwhelmingly focused on the threat. That's where the taskings are. Right, um, and then once we've acknowledged or you know recognized that there's a threat, it's well, what do we need? What do we want from our partner? Rather than what can we reasonably expect from our partner? Uh, we don't spend as much time on that question, and we don't build our policies around that. Um, you know, and I so I I in the book sort of make a strong argument uh, for, and it's it's it's. Uh, Come come up with better terms for it. It's really clunky, but right that that we need to sort of supplement a threat centric paradigm with a partner centric paradigm. Right, and the idea that if we're going to continue to partner with these countries, we need to do a better job of understanding what it is that they're up to and what we can expect from them. That's great. So um, I have to ask, and even though I know you said this in the beginning that um, Trump. The Trump administration strategy is unknown. But just from what you know um, of counterterrorism strategy and everything that you've written, um, how do you think the current changes in the administration, such as Rex Tillerson being replaced by Pompeo as Secretary of State, John Bolton as a national security advisor, and now Gina Haspel as a CIA director, how do you think these sort of bureaucratic changes are going to impact Trump's counterterrorism strategy? So I'm not sure the changes at the top of the CIA are going to have a, a, a huge impact. Um, and I, I do think it's important to note, right, that Bolton and Pompeo uh, are, you know, may not be in lockstep on all of these issues, right? I mean, there does seem to be a competition, you know, developing between them over various issues. Uh, and I'm I'm not an expert on 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 you know the the Trump administration by any stretch. There's people in this town who study that far more intently than I do. Um, although I find myself reading a lot more about domestic politics. Uh, than I used to, and try to keep up with politics in the countries that I follow, like I did, you know, two years ago. But I, I will say this: I think, you know, one uh, is that it's going to reinforce that inclination towards a overly militarized CT strategy, right? I don't think Bolton or Pompeo is going to be cheering on, um, you know, all sorts of non-kinetic forms of of, uh, of of CT. Although the caveat to that is that. You know, if Pompeo wants to see an empowered State Department, then that may argue he may find himself arguing for things that he doesn't necessarily believe in from a right po policy prescriptive position, but from a bureaucratic position. If you want to have a strong State Department, then you can't just argue for a military-led CT strategy. Uh, and, and so that that could be that. I think that's an important thing to note. Um, I think the other piece is actually uh, Iran. Um, which is that, you know, Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism, and it's it's you know the United States has been focused primarily on jihadist groups, but it's not like it doesn't focus on Hezbollah or Iranian-supported militias. And you know, one of the questions that that I that I'm curious to see answered is, are we going to see a greater focus on Iranian-supported groups uh, going forward? Um, you know, even though those groups are responsible for fewer uh, American, you know casualties, certainly civilian casualties uh, since 9-11. Um, and we're, I think we're already seeing what that means in terms of how the United States engages with certain partners in the Middle East. All right. And, and we were talking about Yemen before. It's hard to change partners' threat perceptions. Uh, you know, Obama administration tried to change Saudi Arabia's threat perceptions and get them to be less concerned about Iran. But it looks like our threat perceptions have changed, right? We haven't changed the Saudis' threat perceptions. Rather, we've brought ours in line with theirs. Now, we're that much more concerned, right? Or not concerned about Iran. I, I think the Obama administration was concerned about Iran, but we are much more hawkish uh, in this administration. Um, and so... 
you know, that means perhaps that certain partners are empowered um, to do things that I think are not in the United States' interests, right? Um, Saudi Arabia more so in in, in Yemen, um, engaging in more sectarianism, you know, these types of things I think we need to be on the lookout for. So just one last question for us data nerds out there. Um, can you tell us briefly about how you conducted your research? Like who did you interview and why? Sure. Uh, so this book actually started out um, as a as a an enti- not entirely but but a, quite a different book. Uh, it was at, it was I was writing up my PhD dissertation, which looked at why uh, jihadist groups that were in existence but organizationally independent from Al Qaeda at the time of nine eleven did or did not adopt its global agenda, and that morphed into what I thought was going to be a book about how jihadist groups were influenced by the states where they developed or were based, right? And those weren't always the same. And then I spent time working at the Pentagon and working with difficult partners and, and on those relationships. And I came out and I was like, the book that I want to write is the book on how, how we work with those states. And those states' relationships with jihadist groups is just one piece of that. So I'd already conducted a lot of field research in a number of the countries that I you know, used for, for case studies for my PhD. Um, and then I'd been back to Pakistan again a bunch of times uh, since then. Um, and so you know, I had all of that information. I'd also lived in Egypt for a while. I'd studied in Syria. And so I was able to kind of bring in uh, you know, interviews and, and data that I'd gathered during that time. And then I just started conducting a whole ton of, of interviews with, with people in you know, current and former officials here in the United States to try to get an understanding of, of how they saw things. Um, and then, you know, I mean, as with any research, in addition to all those interviews, right, it, you want to hear what people have to say, but you want to triangulate. So you're, you're spending a lot of time with secondary source literature, a lot of time with, uh, you know, with, with news reports um, and, and primary source documents, right, government strategies, government reports. That's great. Um, that especially in- is of interest to me since this is exactly what I did for my dissertation. So I get a big kick out of looking at government documents. But I think that will um, do for today. So thank you, Stephen, for joining us today. Um, and thanks to our uh, producer, Jeff Geld, and all of you out there for listening. Find us on Twitter with at CatoFP to continue the conversation.